Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to our worship service this morning at the Houghton Wesleyan Church. Please stand and join us as we begin by singing our praises to God together.
Feed me. 
such a, a joy and a privilege to come and to worship you and to, to remember all the ways in which you are at work in this world and in our lives. To remember your great love for us. We pray that in this hour of worship, our hearts will be more and more open to you and to your loving embrace for us. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. privilege to uh, welcome Alan Shea uh, here th- this weekend and uh, following this service uh, during the Sunday school hour he will be sharing in Kaleidoscope uh, a little bit more in depth of, than what he's able to do in this service but just give you a little taste of that and his experience ministry in Africa and uh, things that uh, are going on there and uh, we're privileged to have him here this morning. Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. Um, We left Liberia in April in a bit of a hurry because of the Ebola outbreak and our three small boys. Um, Shortly after that, uh, the ELWA hospital in Liberia had their first Ebola patients. And then, as you've heard in the news, things really kind of got out of hand. Um, 
The first thing that really hit the news was the news that Dr. Kent Brantley, our former neighbor, had been diagnosed with Ebola. And uh, before we'd even had a chance to recover from that shock, uh, the next day we heard that um, the wife of my colleague, Nancy Wrightball, also had Ebola. Those were kind of dark days for us for a while. Thank you for your prayers for us. I felt deep in my bones one of them was not going to leave Liberia. But then the Lord worked miracles, and they were both medevaced to Emory University to a great consternation of many Americans that we we're going to bring Ebola to America. But honestly, this is the first time Ebola has been able to be studied in a clinical setting. And so there's a lot of good that has come out of that just alone. Uh, and that provoked the needed global response that was lacking. Um, in the last uh, six months, I've been working um, many nights and burning too many candles, uh, preparing reports and working on plans for what's needed to keep things going at the LWA hospital. We were able to send a generator out last fall, and uh, thanks to generosity of some really major donors, we were able to actually fly it out, and it arrived in four days. And that was a miracle. And um, that, that was also uh, delivered, that flight also delivered a blood mobile for clinical studies of survivor's serum at ELWA Hospital. Um, Elwa Hospital has been the only place of hope in Monrovia for many people. Every hospital has been closed except for ELWA. And... Um, Many, many um, women have died in childbirth just because there's no medical care available. It was really exciting to see the cover of Time magazine, to see the Elwa Hospital's medical director, Jerry Brown, on the cover, and to see the recognition uh, for his work and the work of so many others in this fight against Ebola. Um, that was really exciting. I'm flying to Southern, Southern California on Tuesday. Um, Parker Hannafin has completed three containerized water treatment plants that will be shipped out to Elwa next week. And um, we're going to thank them and pick them up, so to speak. I can't pick up a container, but uh, that'll be exciting to see those plans coming to fruition. Um, after the thousands of deaths that you've heard in the news, just this last week, Liberia only had two new cases of Ebola. And nationwide, they only had 10 patients in treatment. That may be, may be the beginning of the end of Ebola in Liberia. We pray it'll be so, but it's not the end of this uh, epidemic. There's a lot of social stigma for the survivors there are many hundreds of Ebola orphans who've lost even everyone in their extended family. And what to do with them? Um, the families that have been decimated, the economies that are in tatters in these three countries, there's a lot of work to do still and a lot of uh, room for the church and for God's people to be a shining light of hope to people in West Africa. 
Thank you for your prayers and for the gifts that you've sent sacrificially. We're praying every day for our return. We don't know yet when we'll go back. Um, my kids keep asking. We pray it'll, it may still be four or five more months, but uh, we know that day will come. But thank you for praying for us. I'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us with our tithes and offerings.
spend some time praying together. And as we prepare to do that, I did, I did want to mention to you that uh, Alton Shea died yesterday morning after uh, somewhat of a lengthy illness. That uh, We are grateful that he is with the Lord, but uh, we mourn his passing. His uh, service will be next Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock here at the church. So we want to be certainly praying for his family as well as other needs and concerns that are part of our lives and our world. As we pray together, if you would like to come and use the altar rails, a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we come to this moment of prayer because we know that we need you, because we know that you alone are the answer to the burdens that we bring, because you are perfectly good and perfectly holy and perfectly powerful to answer our prayers. This morning, Father, we pray for all who grieve. And we pray especially for family and friends of Alton Shea. In this moment of silence, hear our prayers. Father, we pray for all who are who are ill, dealing with issues of body and mind. We think especially of Jill Kingdon Tyson and Priscilla Reese Waltz, for Vesta Mullen and Tim Nichols, Bruce Brenneman, for Bill Roski and Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Isla Shea, for Dick Gould and Edna Howard and Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler and for others on our minds today. Hear our prayers. Father, we pray for our local institutions. We thank you for each of them, and we pray that you would pour out your rich blessings upon them and all who are involved with them and connected to them. Hear our prayers. Father, we pray for the medical and dental team that is in Haiti right now. For their work, for the other works of your people throughout the world. Hear our prayers. 
Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who gather for worship today, knowing that they are putting their livelihood and their lives in jeopardy. For our brothers and sisters, hear our prayers. We pray for people throughout the world who are in difficult situations, great need. And we think especially of those who are most vulnerable and who are often victims of greed and power and violence and war. For these, hear our prayers. Father, teach us anew that this day and every day is a day that you have made. And give us grace that we might rejoice and be glad in all of your gifts. Remind us again and again that you are the rock of ages. That we cling to you for strength and for transformation for grace and mercy. We offer our prayers through the name and power of Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read the gospel? Following the scripture reading, uh, the children may be dismissed for both children's church and junior church. I'm reading this morning from John chapter 6, verses 35 to 59. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. 
At, the, at this, the Jews were there. The Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, "I am the bread that came down from heaven." They said, "Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, "I came down from heaven?" Stop grumbling among yourselves," Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, "How can this man give us his flesh to eat?" Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Children may be dismissed. May be dismissed. Stars they wept. The morning sun was dead. The savior of the world was fallen. His body on the cross. His blood poured out for us. The weight of every curse upon him. Yeah.
We're at that uh, point in the year where uh, we're between some holidays and or some special events, I guess, that are a part of our culture. Uh, we've just completed the uh, Christmas and New Year's holiday, and that's a, that's a holiday that has lots of connections to food. I assume in your house there are things that you did in that holiday that you know, you'd made Christmas cookies, or you had a big uh, Christmas dinner, you had, maybe you had a big gathering on New Year's. And the, the next big food holiday is in a couple of weeks, and that's the Super Bowl. Right? I mean, how many people really watch the game? Most people are there for the food. Uh, that, that's why you, you get together. I mean, you hear the advertisements on the radio, come watch the game at, at our restaurant, and we've got all these food deals that you can have. And a lot of people get together on that day, whether they like football or not, because it's a day to eat food. And we all love food. And food's a big part of our lives. And I think probably, if we're honest, food is both a joy and a nemesis to us. On the one hand, it brings great pleasure to us. We enjoy eating the food that's part of our lives. But we also know that sometimes we eat too much. Sometimes we eat the wrong things. Sometimes we we wish uh, the next day we hadn't eaten what we did. And food has that way of of being both a joy and a nemesis. But it's a a central part of our lives. We have to have it to live. When I read the scriptures, I find that God is really interested in food. He always has been. He sets up in the garden the food for Adam and Eve to eat. And when you read the Old Testament and and he establishes the nation of Israel, he gives them some laws, a lot of dietary laws about what they can eat and what they can't eat. And we read that list and sometimes it feels a little strange to us, but in their culture, a lot of it had to do with their health. 
You know, eat the right kinds of food or they'll make you sick or worse. Had to do with what he saw was a healthy diet for them so that they would be nourished and they would, they would be able to do what they need to do. And you read through the scriptures, you come to the New Testament and you find Jesus also thinking a lot about food. And when we come to John chapter 6, the beginning of this chapter, in this chapter we have this discussion about food. And it starts at the beginning of John 6 with Jesus feeding the 5,000. You got this great group of people. They've been listening to Jesus teach all day. And to get to the end of it, and Jesus realizes these people are hungry. And there's, the count is 5,000 men. And that doesn't include the women and children. So it's probably a good 10, 12,000 people there. And here, here Jesus says, let's feed them. And of course, the disciples are freaking out. What do we do with all these people? How do we feed them? And Jesus breaks the bread and it multiplies the fish. And he feeds all these people with baskets full left over. And the next day, the people come looking for Jesus again. And they're saying, we're hungry. And, it, and, and Jesus is a little bit irritated with them. He says, because you only want me around because you think I'm some kind of food magician. That I can pull food out of a hat and you won't have to work anymore. You don't have to do anything to get your food. Just hang out with Jesus. He'll take care of you. And as much as Jesus is interested in their physical needs and feeding them physically, he says, I am just that much more interested in your souls. And Jesus tries to begin to help them understand that he comes as as a holistic savior. That God is concerned about every part of a person's being, their souls and their bodies. And for us, we have a tendency to emphasize the, the spiritual dimension of Jesus, and we sort of feel like everything else is secondary. Their issue is the opposite. For them, Jesus is this magical food bringer. And they're not really thinking about what he does for them spiritually, and Jesus is trying to help them understand that. And they get into this big discussion about manna. And the manna comes from, in Exodus 16, the people are grumbling. They've come out of, the, out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness. They're grumbling because they don't have the right food to eat. And, and Moses says, God, what do I do? And he says, okay, every morning when you get up, there's going to be this stuff on the ground. And they call it manna because it means, what is it? <laughs> they don't even know what it is. Like, what is this stuff? And he says, you collect it every day, and this is your food. It says it's like coriander seed. It has a little bit of a wafer look like honey. It kind of makes me think maybe it's like rice cakes. No wonder they get tired of it. Every day, rice cakes. Every day, manna. 40 years. But that's how God nourishes them, feeds them. And, and it becomes this identification with God's greatness and his ability to care for his people And they say to Jesus, that was God's sign to us that he's with us. You're telling us you come from God. What's your sign? And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, bread is a staple in most of the cultures of the world. And there are all kinds of varieties of bread. I found just a few images online of different kinds of bread. It'll probably make you hungry. It did me as I was looking at this. Different textures, different colors. That's the one that amazed me the most. The whole car made out of bread. 
Who thinks of doing that, right? Bread is such is, is a staple. It identifies sort of that, that nourishment that we need. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the bread of life. I'm the one who gives you nourishment. I, and I'm the one who feeds you. I'm the one who takes care of you. And, and comes and he says, I am God. And once again, he uses this, it's this I am statement of Jesus. I am I am the bread of life. I am the nourishment for everything about you, including your souls and your eternal existence. And he says, anyone who eats of me will know God and will have all the blessings of God poured out upon their life, including eternally. In, in chapter, or in John six fifty three, the message says, Jesus says, if you want to be nourished by God, you need a healthy appetite for Jesus. I find that an interesting idea. That we have a healthy appetite. There is in that word a sense of hungering for Jesus. And that makes me think of, of what Jesus says in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, where he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. There is this need, this hunger for God, this hunger for Jesus that allows us to be fed. And what does it mean to hunger for Jesus? I think it means to want him, to have a yearning for him, to desire him. And what we want from him is to let him be who he says he is. So often, we want Jesus to be who we want him to be. We want to shape him into our image. But if we truly are hungering for Jesus... If we truly, have, truly desire a healthy appetite for Jesus, then we want him to be who he is. Truth and grace and love and mercy. We are unwilling to, to put him in our boxes. We recognize that we cannot confine him. We are willing to let him be who he is as the otherness of God. And to come to us as God in flesh. To be what we need. And we have this yearning in our souls for him. As I was thinking about this hungering, my mind went back to, to the, the song of Bruce Springsteen in the 80s. That everybody has a hungry heart. He just keeps repeating that. Everybody's got a hungry heart. And I thought, we do. Now he's talking about relationships and the loneliness of that. But this a hungering heart for Jesus. And he says, if you hunger for me... Your life will be transformed. But it's not enough just to hunger for him. He says, you have to eat me. I got to be honest, this really weird thing, conversation Jesus says about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And they're confused about it. And quite frankly, we're probably confused about it. But what Jesus is trying to say is it's not enough just to want him. As important as that is, we've got to engage him. We actually have to sit down at the table and eat what he offers us. Now, you can sit at a table, this lavish banquet, look at it. It smells awesome. It looks awesome. But if you don't eat it, it doesn't do anything for you. We don't get nourished just by looking at food or just by smelling food. We have to eat the food. And what does it mean to eat the food of Jesus? means surrendering to him. 
means letting him be who he is. It means trusting him. It means engaging ourselves with him. And when the scriptures say over and over again, we are to eat him and surrender to him, we are trusting who he is. The verb that that John uses, there's a lot of words in Greek to mean to eat, and it had various connotations. But the word he uses here in verse 54 and 56 and 58 is this word that means to chew over and over again. Now, you know, I, I tend to be a fast eater. And partly because my dad was a fast eater, he's gotten better about it. And, but he learned to eat fast from, my, from his mother. I, mean, I can't tell you how many times we were at my grandmother's house for a meal, and she was a great cook. And, and she would make, make the meal, but she was an extremely fast eater. And when she was done, everybody was done. I'm serious. I have been sitting at around the table and she finishes her meal and she is up taking plate, everybody's plate off. I've been a mid-bite and I put my fork down and the plate's gone. And my dad's mom, we're not done yet. She goes, well, we got to get the dessert. Come on, let's go. And he tried to tell her, we're not finished. But if she was done, everybody was done. And I think because of that, I never really learned to savor food. And there's something about this word that John uses that talks about savoring Jesus. Sometimes we just want to gulp down everything and say, okay, how can I get to the next thing? And and our spiritual disciplines and the ways we encounter Christ are all about speed. And we've been taught to, to think that bigger, faster is always better. But the reality is Jesus is calling us to savor him. His word, the disciplines of life, relationships. Take our time to let the the things of God come to us in a a way that that we can truly engage them. To think about who he is. To meditate upon who he is. To let him and his very presence just fill us. And sometimes the, the most profound means of, of eating Christ, feeding on Christ, is, is just to, to let him speak into our souls quietly, meditatively, slowly. And the important thing is, how can we check? It's not how can we check off the list and get to the next thing. It's just engaging Christ. When I think about the, the, what it means to have a, uh, to, to feed on Christ, I, I, I realize that you know, when we eat food, there are a healthy diet. is really about thing, food that's generally good for us and specifically good for us. You know, there are kind of there are food, foods that are good for all of us, and foods that are probably not so good for all of us. You know, there, there are things in our diets that we know everybody ought to eat some of this. It'll be good for you, and probably we shouldn't be eating too much of that because it isn't healthy for us. And yet, at the same time, there are specific foods that are good for you and may not be good for me, and good for me and may not be good for you. Since I was a little little child, I've struggled with migraine headaches. And I've, you know, through the years, tried to figure out what triggers those. And I've come to discover that coffee is one of the things that triggers my migraines. And it's killing me because I love coffee. 
I love the aroma of coffee. You know, when you open up the package and when it's brewing. I, I love the, the taste of coffee. Uh, I love the caffeine that coffee has in it. And, and some of you roast coffee and I love drinking what you have made. But I've come to realize that for my own health, as much as I don't want to admit it, it's not good for me. And so I've had to go to decaffeinated coffee and tea. And even that sometimes I wrestle with a little bit. And yet for many of you, coffee's no big deal. But there are things that bother you that don't bother me. And the thing that I find about Christ is that while there are, there are certainly general things that we need to be aware of as followers of Jesus and what it means to feed on him. I think about Micah 6 where he says that all of us ought to act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. We all ought to pay attention and, and be connected to and, and obey the Ten Commandments. We all ought to take heed to Jesus who says he summarizes those commandments and love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But at the same time, there are only a few people, maybe even just one, who's asked to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. There are only a few people who are, who are asked to give up their profession in order to follow him. There are a few people who are specifically asked and called to live a life of a martyr. I'm intrigued in the counter in John 20 or 21 when Jesus and, and uh, his disciples are walking on the shore and he's walking with Peter and he's telling Peter some of the things that he's going to have to experience in his life and it's not real pleasant. And Peter looks back at John and he says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, you don't worry about him. I've got things in mind for him. You just worry about yourself. And sometimes... That's the way it is in following Jesus with us. But the great thing is Jesus knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly what is the right diet for every one of us. And we all need a certain amount of solitude. But for some of us, we engage so deeply in solitude that it nourishes our soul. Whereas for others, some activity is what helps us. All of us are called to be generous, but some of us have been, have been called and been given the gift of being extravagantly generous. There are things about our lives, and the problem is we have a tendency to say, well, if, if this is my diet, then it is, should be your diet too. And you say, well, this is my diet, so it ought to be your diet too. Well, maybe, but maybe not. God knows exactly what we need to feed our souls based on our personality and our experiences and our lives. And that's the great thing about the kingdom is that we can encourage each other through this journey together because eating is personal and corporate. No one can eat for us. I, I, can't, I can't nurture your soul. I can't feed you. you have to, we all have to eat ourselves. I, I, you can't eat vicariously and be nourished. But we can help each other eat. We can feed each other. We can make food for each other. We can encourage each other. And quite frankly, it's a lot easier to have it, to stick with a healthy diet when there are other people who are walking that same path with us. And the same thing is true spiritually. It's one of the great blessings of the kingdom. Because we know in our world, 
in, with physical food that the world tends to cater toward less healthy diets. I mean, we, we look at marketing. I mean, all I have to say is Tim Hortons, M&M's, Pringles, Doritos. And your mouth begins to water a little bit in a way that it probably doesn't if I say cabbage and kale. Broccoli. You know, those things are okay in moderation, I guess. And sometimes in the kingdom, the way Jesus, what, what feeds our souls, it sometimes feels as though the things of God, the things of Christ are limiting us. It's not all that fun. It's not that exotic. It's not that exciting. It isn't the, the things that our, that our spiritual tongues are used to. And sometimes we simply have to say, but it's best for us. And the great thing about God is that he knows what's best for us. And he offers us this balanced, healthy diet. And it's not all hard food. But it's all good food. And it's just our willingness to embrace it. And this is the thing that makes me excited about hearing Jesus say, I'm the bread of life. Because it means he is offering us the very best of God. I think back to the prophet Jeremiah who, to whom God says, my plans for you are not to harm you but to prosper you. And the food of Jesus for every one of us is always in our best interest. It is always what is, what is healthiest for us and what will nourish our souls. And that's why Jesus comes to nourish our lives. And even when life is difficult, Christ comes and when we feed on him, we find joy and peace and life and transformation and all of the best things that we could ever experience. We find the blessing of God in all of its fullness because this is God's plan for us. And yes, sometimes that food isn't always exactly what we wish we might have. And sometimes it looks like other people are eating a lot more food that's a lot more fun and exotic. But we trust that the food of Jesus is always best. And it truly will nourish who we are, and it it brings us to the place where we are who God created us to be. And only Jesus can supply that kind of nourishment and food for us. But we understand sometimes it's hard. When I was, I don't know, probably eight or ten years old, I don't remember exactly, our family went camping one one week in a state park in Indiana. And uh, as was always our practice, we went to church on Sunday. No matter where we were, we went, found a church someplace where we could go. That led to some very interesting experiences sometimes. But this time we decided that the, camp, the state park was offering a service on Sunday morning, so we decided we'd just stay there and go to that church service. Service was about 9 o'clock, so we got up about 7.30, 8 ate a big breakfast, and then walked, went over to the place where the service was. And uh, we, were, we were there, and, and uh, at the end of the, the pastor's sermon, he uh, offered communion to everyone. And so we were, we were sitting in this row, and they had the trays with the little pieces of bread and the cups. 
And they were passing it down the rows. And my little sister, who probably at that time was about five or six, was sitting next to me at the end of our family. And the tray came down the row, and the man next to her took a, took a piece of bread out of the tray and turned to hand it to her. And she, she looked at him, and after eating this big, big breakfast that we'd had that morning, bacon, eggs, unusual for us on Sunday morning because Dad was a pastor. We didn't eat a lot. Of, we, you know, we were pretty much out the door on Sunday. He turned, handed her that tray, and she looked at him, and as innocently as could be, said to him, Oh, no, thank you. I couldn't eat another bite. I just about fell out of my chair laughing or in embarrassment. And we've teased her about that for probably 45 years. But you know, sometimes that's how we feel about Jesus. You know, Lord, I'm kind of full on the other stuff. And uh, thanks, but I'm okay. And I compare that to something I have heard said over and over and over again on some of the cooking shows that we watch. I've said to you before, we love watching the, the Food Network and some of the cooking shows and these competitions that they have. And it, it intrigues me as they describe their food. I hear the judges say, you know, this is love on a plate. Or, I really feel your passion in this food. And I think, I, what are you talking about? It's just food. You know, how, how do you feel love on a plate? I don't know, but somehow they experience it. And the chefs always say, well, I really put my heart into that. But one of the things that intrigues me that I hear, I've heard this dozens and dozens and dozens of times as the people tell their stories. And they talk about how they were on drugs or they were, they were alcoholics or they were homeless. They lost their jobs, didn't know what they were going to do. Their family had fallen apart. They were in an abusive relationship. Life was about as bad as it could be. And then somehow they got into the food industry. And they began to cook, and they fell in love with that. And I've heard these people over and over again look at the judges and say, I'm here because food saved me. I've come to this competition. I've gotten this place in my life because food saved me. And I've often thought, and especially as I read this passage again, Isn't that what Jesus is offering us? Not the kind of of food that they're talking about, but the food of life. The food that allows us to be who God created us to be. The fullness of God. And we come to this table this morning to engage Jesus, maybe for the first time or the thousandth time. And to experience him and to surrender ourselves to him and to trust him. And we come to this table because we're hungry. And we come to this table because we believe that Jesus is indeed the food of life. And we come to this table acknowledging that David is right. When he declares in the psalm, taste And see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. As we feed on him this morning, 
may we understand anew that truth. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ is indeed the bread of life that feeds us in every way. We pray that as we come to this table this morning that the bread and the cup will be blessed by your spirit. And as we eat and drink, this will be food for our souls. That we will experience the greatness of who you are and the invitation that you give to us and the joy of experiencing that you are good. Nourish our souls through the bread and the cup. Through Christ we pray. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread and he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and then he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven. He gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. As we take communion this morning, you'll be released by rose. Come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. And then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. If you'd like to stay and pray at the altar rail, it's always open for you to do so. If coming to the front is difficult for you, we do have a tray of bread and cups. We're happy to serve you in your seat. And I also have gluten-free wafers here and cups. If you would like that, just let me know as you come forward. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. Maybe the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with a hungering in your heart for Christ, with the desire to surrender your heart and soul and being to him, then come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, heavenly Father. Remember the wounds that heal the 
bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.